If you've got your Bibles, I'm reading from 1 Corinthians. We're in the middle of a, a series. And I'm following on from Adrian last week, speaking on diversity and unity. It wasn't planned that Father's Day was going to be a sermon on love, but that's the way it's come. I don't think I've ever preached this subject on Father's Day before, but um, I hope you'll find it quite pertinent. Right, I'm reading, I'm going to start from the end of chapter 12, from verse 27. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. And in the church, God has appointed first of all apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then workers of miracles, also those having gifts of healing, those able to help others, those with gifts of administration, and those speaking in tongues. Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all have gifts of healing, do all speak in tongues, do all interpret, but eagerly desire the greater gifts. And now I will show you the most excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clashing cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mystery and all knowledge, and I have a faith that can move mountains but have not love, then I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there's knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. Now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror, and then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I'm fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Follow the way of love and eagerly desire spiritual gifts. I'd like to introduce you this morning to rabbit. This is Bethany's rabbit. This is actually rabbit number two. Bethany got rabbit number one when she was, literally when she was born, when she was newborn. And Bethany loved her rabbit. It went everywhere with her. It got almost loved to death, to be honest. It had really soft, strokey ears, and she would snuzzle it and chew it and suck it, and it would go to bed with her, and it would help her to sleep and everything else. It went to Niger with us, and for several years, Bethany and Rabbit were not parted. On the very rare occasion when Rabbit ever got left behind or was missing, there were tears, there were sleepless nights. It was a problem. Okay? And that, that's, that's Bethany on her first birthday. And that's, that's Rabbit number one. Now, unfortunately, when we came back as a medical emergency when Bethany was four. Um, rabbit number one, unfortunately, got lost in the confusion at Queen's Medical Centre. I think somewhere in the car park. 
Um, and as you can imagine, we nearly had a tragedy because we were losing Bethany. But the fact we didn't lose Bethany, we're incredibly thankful to God. But in the process, we had a, a minor tragedy with that we lost Rabbit. <laughs> <laughs> so Auntie Margaret very kindly took Jenny, and Jenny into town. And Bethany went as well, I think. And they went to buy another rabbit. And she went to the shop, and you can imagine, there's thousands of the blessed things. You know, there's big ones, and there's small ones, and there's pink ones, and there's everything. And instinctively, as a four-year-old, she, she was like, which one do you want? She went, the biggest one. But Jenny said, no, what you need to do is close your eyes and pick it up and snuzzle it and cuddle it and see if it feels like the first rabbit. And in the end... This was chosen as rabbit number two, not because it was the biggest or the best, but because it felt right. It felt like rabbit that had been lost. Now, John Altberg has written a book called Love Beyond Reason, and he introduces us to something called ragdoll theology. He tells the story, very similar to rabbit, of his little sister who had a ragdoll. And everywhere she went, the ragdoll went, and the ragdoll got loved to death. And at the beginning, the ragdoll was quite pretty, was quite, quite attractive, quite a nice thing to have. But after years, years of love and possibly abuse, um, ragdoll got very raggy around the edges. Now, I must admit, in America, you can actually take your doll to a hospital and they, they, they perform reconstructive surgery on your ragdoll and they make it as good as new. <laughs> but the point is that the ragdoll may have started out being attractive, being almost worthy of love. But by the time it's had years of, of wear, it actually looks like a scraggy, beaten-up old thing that really isn't worth anything except putting in the bin. But at that point, the child loves the ragdoll, not because it's attractive, not because it's worthy of being loved, but purely because it has that value in the child's eyes. And the spiritual truth is that we are all ragdolls. We are all worn out by life. We're all raggy around the edges. We may have started out looking, looking pretty good, some of us, maybe not all of us, I don't know. But the truth is we're not what we once were, are we? <laughs> you know, I had hair when I was 21. <laughs> We all have our issues and our problems. We all do get worn out by life. And that can create a situation where we start to feel unlovely. We start to feel as if we don't particularly deserve to be loved. We don't look that great. We know what our weaknesses are. We know what our failings are. Um, and quite often, our greatest critic is ourselves. But the second spiritual truth is that we are all God's ragdolls. And just as the child loves the ragdoll, regardless of what it looks like, so God loves us with a love that doesn't depend on what we're like. And that's maybe very simplistic, but it's actually also incredibly important. Because t as Tim said earlier, our entire Christian lives need to be founded on the unshakable belief that God loves us with an unshakable and an undying love. 
And however bad we are, however ragged around the edges we are, however much we may well need to change or improve or do something else, he still loves us anyway. And the definition of that love is that the love does, it isn't, let me get it right. The doll is not loved because it is beautiful, but it is the love for the doll that makes it beautiful. So we are beautiful in God's eyes because of the fact that he loves us, not because of how attractive we are. There's one other spiritual truth that I'm going to add to John Ortberg, and that is that the world around us is also full of absolutely crammed full of ragdolls. The whole world around us are people who are unattractive, who are worn out, who have got raggy bits, and who feel unlovely. And as the body of Christ, not only are we called to love one another, but we actually need to start loving and recognizing the love that God has for the world around us. And we'll come back to that later. And I must admit, I, um, Mr. Dawson can pay me later, but if ever there was a, a foundation for love long eaten, it would be ragdoll theology. That at the end of the day, we're trying to say to the community we live in, God loves you regardless of what you look like, regardless of how bad you are, and we want to try and show you something of that love that God has for you. Right, as we come to 1 Corinthians 13, um, I'm going to go through some aspects of what love is. First of all, um, it's very, very simple. I suspect, I've called it elementary theology. There's probably very little that I can preach to you this morning one from 1 Corinthians 13 that you probably haven't heard already. This is, the, this is the marriage sermon, isn't it? This is the wedding one where it comes out every, every time. You know, And you must have been to enough weddings in your lifetime to have heard this passage. So I'm not going to try and wade through the whole lot. What I'm going to do is pick out some specifics that I feel are relevant for us, that I felt the Holy Spirit highlighted for me as I was preparing. Okay, so to start right down at the beginning, we've got numerous teachers here. We've got some primary school teachers. Love is a verb. And as you will teach your primary school kids, a verb is a doing word. Now, that's dead simple, and I'm not trying to insult your intelligence. The problem is we live in a culture that has tried to, to redefine what love should be. Our culture defines love as lots of warm, fuzzy feelings, and it's predominantly about self-gratification. We love what makes us feel good. People love their football team because they win, hopefully. (laughs) Some love their football team regardless, (laughs) and that's that's probably a higher form of love, Phil, definitely. Hey, England won when it was on at the Oasis. Let's see if anyone else can match that. Okay, but love is a verb. And my only other comment really is that if ever you need evidence of love, I would suggest it's this that love is willing to give. Okay? So if we if we're not sure, do I really love someone? Do I really love this situation? Am I showing God's love in, in this context? The real test, if you need one, is am I willing to give something? Am I willing to give myself? Am I willing to give my time? Am I willing to give my money to support this? 
to make it happen, to make it work. John 3.16, for God so loved that he gave. Giving and loving go hand in hand. And I think that actually applies on every level because love operates on many levels. And even on the really basal level, even on the, the physical level, you know, what we'd call maybe lust or, or, or eros in the Greek, um, where, you've got, where you've got physical love that is about gratification, that gives gifts all the time. You know, think of the teenagers going out together. How many, how many gifts get given when, you, when you're engaged? You know, you're buying flowers and you're giving chocolates and you, you're doing all that. And fellas, you know, I hope occasionally your wife still gets some flowers and chocolates. <laughs> Let's leave it at that, shall we? <laughs> okay. Love is also multifaceted. It operates on several levels. Now, this is one of the best examples where the language that we use quite strongly affects our understanding of things. And there are times when the English language and the Greek language that the Bible was, New Testament was originally written in can be very different. Now, we only have one word for love, and that actually isn't really very helpful because we can only use that one word that we know. In Greek, there are three different words. The first level is eros. You like my cartoons? For anyone that's listening to this online, we've got cartoons of a smiley face with a tongue hanging out, looking very hopeful. (laughs) Secondly, we've got phileo in Greek, which is to do with a relational love. Just keep it in return, Patrick, thanks. And that's about relationship. And my cartoon there is of a a couple getting married. The the figure on the left has actually got a wedding dress on, but you can't see it on the white screen. (laughs) And then the third level of love is the word agape, which I'm sure you've heard of. And that's described as a sacrificial love. And that's, because come back to my ragdolls, that's the love that creates value, even in the unlovely. Interestingly, in Latin, there's two different words for love. There's the word amour, which I think the French language would get um, l'amour, je d'amour, um, but they've also got a, the, the, the word caritas, which is actually where in English we get the word charity from. And in the Latin Bible from the 16th century, the Vulgate, there were two different words, and, and it was translated as charity because of this Latin word that was a, diff, was, was a higher form of love than just the basic um, physical love. The reason I'm explaining all that is that that becomes very relevant to Jesus Uh, that we're just going to come to in a minute. Now, interestingly, Leon Morris, he wrote the Tyndale commentary on 1 Corinthians. And he actually explains the fact that this word agape, which we know as as the, the highest form of love, and we attribute it as the love of God. It's the love that God has for us because it's sacrificial. It's the love that held Jesus on the cross. He actually explains that before the first century, it was a word that was very little used. It wasn't very common. And it's actually the Christians that started using this word, agape, and it became much more commonly used as a description of a sacrificial love. Okay, so to carry on with love, um, what love is. Top of my list, love is forgiving. And the story that best exemplifies this is where Jesus reinstates Peter. You find it in John chapter 21. 
um, over several verses, but the, the, the key one is in verse 17. In our NIV, it's translated, Jesus says to Peter, Simon Peter, son, do you truly love me? And Peter says, yes, Lord, you know I love you. And three times Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? And he says, yes. And he says, feed my sheep, take care of my lambs. And obviously, Peter denied Jesus three times. And I don't think anybody that was there on that day had any doubt that Jesus did it three times because he he wanted Peter to face up to the fact of what he'd done. And Jesus met Peter at his point of failure. And love was the basis of his reinstatement. Love was the basis of his forgiveness. Love was the basis of his commissioning. But the thing that I personally find very significant is what actually gets said in the Greek with those three different words for love. Now, if you want to study this, you will find some commentators that actually say the different Greek words don't have a huge amount of relevance because they can be interchangeable. Personally, I read it on face value. And what actually happened in that conversation was Jesus said to Peter, Peter, do you agape me? Do you love me with the highest form of love that is self-sacrificial? But Peter's answer is not, yes, I agape you. His answer is, yes, I phileo you, which means I love you as a friend. So Peter didn't feel that he could match up to the standard that Jesus was asking him. And then Jesus says a second time, Peter, do you agape me? Do you love me with that highest form of love? And again, Peter says the same, yes, I phileo you. But then the third time, Jesus changes And instead of using the word for love, agape, he uses the word phileo himself. And he says, Peter, do you phileo me? Do you love me as a friend? And that's when the Bible says at this point, Peter was greatly saddened because Jesus had asked him a third time. And what's actually happened is that Jesus has come down to the level that Peter felt he was willing to operate on. Now, what a picture of grace is that? You know, it's still based on love. And Jesus still wants Peter to recognize that love is the basis of his forgiveness. But Peter didn't feel he was able to come up to the standard Jesus was asking him. So on the third question, Jesus actually comes down to Peter's level. And I I believe that 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 principle is true for all of us today. When God calls us and when God commissions us, I believe he sets the standard, he sets the bar high. You know, God doesn't just ask us to do something piddly, something simple that any old Joe could do. God actually commissions us and asks us to do something to serve him. That is a high calling. It's difficult. And it needs an attitude that's willing to sacrifice. But at the same time, the grace of God accepts us where we're at. And God will say to you and he'll say to me, okay, I'll take you as you are. But I actually believe he's probably got something higher for us than we are right now. Final note on this little story. I think it's quite interesting that we only find this in the Gospel of John. Because this is a story that's incredibly personal to Peter. And as I'm sure you know, the Gospel of Mark is basically the Gospel of Peter. Mark was Peter's helper and he probably wrote it as a scribe for Peter. So why don't we find Peter's story in Mark's gospel? And I mean, we could speculate. We can't give a definitive answer. But my guess is that Peter either was 
maybe still slightly ashamed of this whole situation and he, he, he didn't actually want to include it. Or it may be something entirely different. It may be that he actually didn't want to sort of blow his own trumpet in the process of dictating a gospel. And he actually left it to his, his friend John to tell the story about what happened to him. But nevertheless, we only find this in John's gospel. And John is, is known as the, as the disciple, as the apostle of love. Okay, carrying on. Love is forgiving. Love is also accepting. And again, I'm really looking at Jesus as our role model in all of this. And there's two different stories. I'm not going not to read them because we don't have time. But firstly, you've got Jesus and Zacchaeus. It's in Luke chapter 19. And again, you know the story. Zacchaeus is a tax collector. He's got zero friends. He's Billy No Mates. And he's a bad boy. He steals money from everybody. And he's, rich, he's stinking rich, but he's, he's lonely. And Zacchaeus desperately wants to meet Jesus. And Jesus picks him out through the crowd and says, you on the back row trying to hide. I'm coming to your house for dinner. And the love that Jesus had for that man, saw beyond his sin, saw beyond his problems, saw beyond the ragdoll, and accepted him. Very similar situation. You've got Jesus and the prostitutes in the house of Simon. That's in Luke chapter 7. I must admit, when I was writing this, first of all, I wrote Jesus and Mary. But actually, there's some debate whether the Luke account is Mary that that did the perfume on Jesus' feet just before he was due to die, and whether this account in Luke 7, which is much earlier, may well be a different woman. But nevertheless, in Luke 7, you've got Jesus and and an unnamed prostitute. She's a bad girl. You know, she lives a life of sin. She lives a life of immorality. She's going to be carrying all kinds of baggage, as we can all guess. But in the house of the Pharisee, who's very religious and very proper and who, who says his prayers and he gives his tithes, Jesus actually responds to the woman as being the one whose heart was right. And he said to her daughter, your, your faith, because of your faith, you are forgiven. And Jesus, for both Zacchaeus and that woman, because of his love, he accepted them. Now, I'm not suggesting for a second that he condoned their behavior. In fact, quite the opposite. To Zacchaeus, he said, right, I love you, but now you need to change your, change your behavior. Go and sell, go and give, you, go and give out and pay back you know, more than you took. And the woman, the woman caught in adultery, he may have forgiven her. He didn't say go back and carry on. He said, go and sin no more. And I think that's the crucial thing for us when we talk about loving the world and about loving people. It's the whole concept about loving the person but not loving the behavior And as a church, I think we really have to get this right in the culture we live in, because otherwise we can end up very easily becoming hypocrites. And we can can ignore certain types of sin and almost condone it, but other things we come down very heavy on. And we need to be consistent, you know, and we need to love the person, love the sinner, but but be, be biblical and take a stand without compromising on the behavior, whether that's behavior within church or whether that's behavior in the world around us. When Simon Foster was here in February, he preached what I thought was, was an incredible sermon on John 3.16, because how can anyone preach a sermon on John 3.16 that we haven't already heard before? 
But he did. And he talked about the fact that for God so loved the world. And he said, let's be honest, we don't love the world as Christians. We avoid it. We criticize it. We blame it for all kinds of things. But largely, we tend to, you know, it's the them and us. We put up a wall to protect ourselves and we, to some extent, we still have a a little bit of a hang on of the old remnant theology where, Lord, you know, we're going to hang on and we're going to try and stay pure and keep away from that horrible world out there and we hide away. Um, Now, I think it's good that we've moved from there and I think there's a general recognition that actually God calls us to be salt and light to make a difference. And you see, for me personally... I think that our highest calling as Christians, which is the same calling as, as being missionaries, is to transform and disciple the ungodly world around us. The only way we're going to be able to do that is based on the love of God. And if God loved the world, then we need to learn to be able to love the world. Okay, moving on, because I'm getting short on time. Let's come to the passage that we know very well. Love is patient. The word in Greek for that means the opposite of short-tempered. And my best description for this is that it's basically kettle theology. It's about being slow to boil. And as Max Lucado says in his book on um, a love worth giving, he said that what love does is it turns the heat down. It doesn't ignore, it doesn't condone, but it allows some grace. It gives some time. For things to be dealt with. The only example in the whole New Test in the whole of the Gospels, sorry, where you find the word patience is in Matthew eighteen and the parable of the king and the debtor. You've got the servant that owed the king thousands, and he comes before the king, and the servant gets down on the floor, he says, Oh king, I know I owe you a fortune, but please be patient with me. Now, it's a bit of a strange use of word. You'd think he'd beg for mercy. You'd think he'd beg for forgiveness because that's what he needed. But he actually said, please be patient with me. Whether he really stood an earthly chance of ever finding that much money is pretty unlikely. But he said, please be patient. And then, but the king actually gave him what he needed, which was forgiveness. And he cleared the debt. And then we know the servant then failed to forgive somebody else a, much, a tiny sum of money. And then the king had the fellow back in and he, and he put him in prison. And it's an interesting example of where he was offered forgiveness, but it didn't change him. And we'll come to that at the end because I th- that's my main application for this morning. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love, is, love does not envy, does not boast. It is not proud. And if you want to give this a title, I would call this chicken theology. It was 1921 that a Norwegian zoologist, I could tell you his name, but I probably couldn't pronounce it right anyway, did a PhD study on chickens. And he studied their behavior in the barnyard. And he worked out that the alpha chicken pecks other chickens the most. And the omega chicken got pecked the most. And every other chicken in between was in a hierarchy. And he called it the pecking order. And that's a phrase that we use today in many different contexts. As, as I think most of you will know, we've got, we rent a field and we've got chickens. Not only do we notice that our chickens peck, 
we also notice that the pecking order is most obvious at bedtime. Because when it's sundown and the chickens are about to go in their coop for the night, they go in in line. They're like kids at the playground that line up in a queue. And they go into the coop in exactly the same order every night. And if for some reason the the boss chicken, who's always the last one to go in, if she for some reason has gone in too soon, then anyone that's in there that shouldn't be, she will shoo the whole lot out and they start again. It's bizarre. (laughs) <laughs> it's surprising what you learn watching chickens. <laughs> in human life, we know that in many different contexts, you end up having a pecking order, don't you? You get, you get someone at the top of the tree, and you get someone down at the bottom, and so everyone else is somewhere in between. Now, as Christians, love does not envy, does not boast, and is not proud. Jesus said... In Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 9, he said, In the kingdom of God, the greatest shall be the least and the first shall be the last. And we talk about an upside down kingdom because the values of God are very often the opposite values that we have in our society. And if ever there was a role model, Jesus himself swapped the majestic for the mundane. He gave up the holy, to become human. And he he showed us what real love in action is. So if we're going to apply love is not proud into our lives and into our church life, that's the role model that we're needing to follow. My final love is, is that love is a fruit. Galatians 5.22 says, The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. Love is patient. Love is kind. 1 Corinthians 13 and Galatians 5 have got very strong overlaps. And this is why I deliberately read at the beginning and started with the bit about the gifts. And I ended with the bit about the gifts again. Because it's no accident whatsoever that Paul, in writing 1 Corinthians, has sandwiched the fruit of the Spirit in the middle of the gifts of the Spirit. And chapter 12 to chapter 14 need to be read as a unit. They really do. They don't stand apart. They stand together. Adrian's series is entitled Character and Charisma. It goes with these entirely. Character is all about fruit. The fruit of the Holy Spirit in our lives is our character. Charisma is all about gifts. Now, I would like to suggest, and I imagine everyone would agree with me, that it's not an either-or, it's a both-and. We're not aiming for one or the other, we're aiming for both. Because we need both to to, to live godly lives. But my personal comment on the gifts, because they are what are held in balance by the fruit and by love, is that I believe that the gifts of the Spirit are actually like a toolbox. And the Holy Spirit makes them available to any of us as he sees fit. There was a time when, um, in church life, we were kind of really into what are my gifts. And there were questionnaires, and we filled things in, and we worked out what our gifts were. And, you know, if I, was, if I, if I had a gift of prophecy, then that was my thing, and you had a gift of evangelism, and that was your thing. And everyone kind of like worked out what their own little bit was. Now, my personal belief now, after rather a lot more life experience and some pastoral experience, is I believe that our gifts 
are actually a blend of the natural gifts that God has placed within our lives that are enhanced supernaturally by the gifts of the Spirit. And I dare say Adrian's going to be talking more about this over the next couple of weeks as we get into chapter 14. But there's three lists of gifts. There's 1 Corinthians 12, there's Romans 12, and there's 1 Peter 4. And they're all different. That's the crucial thing. There is not a definitive list of the gift of the Spirit. And I bet if we really dug in, or if we asked around, there would be differences of opinion about what what counts as a gift and what doesn't. But clearly some of them are a lot more practical than others. Gifts of administration, gifts of serving, gifts of giving. You know, I can't say, oh, I don't think I've got the gift of giving, so I'm not going to give anything. Well, I could, but it would be a bit of a cop-out. And for me, um, there's a couple of things we need to avoid. We need to avoid an elitist mentality, which says, I've got the gift of teaching. I'm better than you. You've only got the gift of prophecy. Or whatever, you know, it doesn't matter what. We also need to avoid an excuse mentality as well. Oh, I haven't got that gift, I can't do it. I think the only time we've really got it wrong is when we confuse gifts and, and, and anointings for ministry. Because there is an overlap. You can, for example, prophecy. You can have a gift of prophecy, which I believe is available to every single one of us, as God sees fit. But I think there's also a ministry of the prophet, which is much more specific, and that's more of a lifelong ministry. And I think we need to differentiate between the two. But at the end of the day, today we're talking about love and its relationship with, with gifts. I believe that if you're looking at character and charisma, we need to think about God's priorities as well as our own. I think, and I want to speak to the men, especially this morning. I think as men, we live in a a society which very much promotes and encourages success, whether it's in work, whether it's in business, whatever it may be. And we tend to have our own value system based on how successful we feel we are. In the kingdom of God, I would like to suggest that our, our godly priority should be our character over and above our charisma. And I say that especially to the men. Because what that, and I say that, I'll be honest with you, I say that as a man who for all of my life has placed a very high value on charisma. You know, I see the gifts of the Spirit as absolutely crucial. I see it as the foundation of my life and my ministry and my future. Um, you know, I, I would have a very, very high view of the gifts of the Spirit. But at the same time, I've learned that actually in God's eyes, he's not so interested in how good am I as a preacher? How good am I as a pastor? How good am I as a nurse? What he's interested in is how good am I as a husband? How good am I as a father? And I've, I've had to learn and I'm still learning that actually my character, I believe in God's eyes, is, is actually far more crucial, far more important than how gifted I am. And I'll close this morning with um, a little bit about Father's Day. Um, Max Lucado has written a book called A Love Worth Giving, and he talks about this thing called the 747 principle. Now, it's actually based on Luke chapter 7 and verse 47, and it's that story of Jesus and the prostitute, because the conclusion of that, of that story, when Jesus addresses the Pharisee, Simon, 
and Simon's complaining about the fact that Jesus has forgiven this prostitute, Jesus says to him, she loved the most because she was forgiven the most. And then he he looks at Simon and he says, but he who has forgiven little loves little. And I I couldn't help thinking there was that old song, I don't know, probably in the 80s, On the Wings of Love. Do you remember? The seven, no, I'm not singing it. <laughs> the 747, the 747 principle are the wings of love. That actually the more we know that we are loved and we are forgiven, the more we are able to love and the more we are able to forgive. And as Max Lucado says, the secret to loving is living loved. Because you can't give what you don't have. And for Father's Day, fellas, we don't have the easiest job in the world. We don't always get it right. But with God's help, and the more we can remember how much we are forgiven and how much we are loved, allows us to be more loving and to be more forgiving. Let's pray, shall we? Holy Spirit of God, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for the truth that we find there. And Lord, we thank you for the challenge and the encouragement that come together. Lord, we pray this morning for your help. Lord, we know that you call us with a high calling to love and to show the love of God, to show the agape that will offer ourselves, that will give ourselves, that will sacrifice ourselves on behalf of others. And Lord, we confess there are times when we don't live up to that. There are times when we're selfish, there are times when we're tired, there are times when we get too distracted by other things. And Lord, we ask your forgiveness this morning, but Lord, we ask for your empowerment. Holy Spirit of God, would you fill us afresh, we pray. Would you fill us with your grace, would you fill us with your power, would you fill us with faith, hope and love? Lord, so that we can be the people that you want us to. We can live the lives that you want us to. And Lord, we can change the world around us. We can love the world despite its failings. And Lord, even despite our own failings. Because Lord, we know that we're ragdolls, but we know that we belong to you. Holy Spirit, please fill us afresh. And please uh, give us opportunity to be your ambassadors this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Our thanks to Ian this morning. That was a great statement, wasn't it? In God, the secret to loving is living loved. I tell you what, take that away. Let's take that away today. In God, the secret to loving is living loved. Wow, that is a spectacular, not just a spectacular statement, but an aim for life. To be successful in life is living loved in God. That is fantastic. Enjoy your day. Uh, enjoy the rest of uh, Father's Day. And our thoughts and our hopes and prayers are with you. And uh, this morning, make sure that you take with you a gift that we have for you. Um, 
I want to pray just a moment or two as we just pray over Father's Day as well. Lord, I thank you for fathers and dads that are here today. Thank you that you're our Father in heaven. It's a great day. It's a day of, re- of, of excitement and rejoicing. And for some of us, it might even be a day of sadness as well. So in the midst of all of that, we do uh, look to love one another, love you, and receive of your great love, Father God, so that we can um, live love. And that's our desire, to live in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Pray a real great day for us and your people this day and that we might enjoy it in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.